I hated things that were over-restored and over-varnished or over-gilded. Uh, I want everything in the original condition. It's the time itself that is also an artist. And I think an old piece that's patinated stays always contemporary. Once people try to restore it, over-restore it, you put it back in their story and it's, it loses a lot of the energy, I think. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today is an icon at the very top of his game. Throughout his long and still thriving career, he's become the ultimate art and design multi-hyphenate, antique dealer, art dealer, interior designer, and curator. Most of all, he's blended these disciplines together so well that he's managed to influence and elevate the modern trajectory of them all. Axel Vervoort. Axel was a Belgian wonderkind of sorts, at least in the world of antiques. He was born in 1947 in Antwerp. His father was a horse trader. Even today, Axel remains an avid rider. And he began selling antiques in his teens. And by his 20s, he was renovating dilapidated architectural spaces. Even in the groovy, late mid-century modernism age of the 1960s, he had a knack for taking old, rustic, and unloved objects and selling them like works of high art. The same go for his interiors. From then till today, Axel is probably most known for his ability to take a sparsely decorated home with nary a drop of color in sight and make them into desirable locales considered the height of luxury. So much of what we think of today as Belgian cool was influenced and created by Axel. In the mid-80s, he acquired a massive amount of Chinese porcelain from a discovered shipwreck called the Hatcher Cargo, where he once again changed the antiques game, not by selling the most rare or extravagant things per se, but by using his eye and curatorial skills to sell a look, a feeling, a narrative. Sound familiar? More on that later. In the 1980s, he also purchased a castle outside of Antwerp that sorely needed a redo, and restored most of it to its regal glory while other spaces were designed to be quiet and minimal. He still lives there today. And in the late 90s, he purchased a massive former factory in Antwerp and slowly transformed it into what is known today as Canal, a temple of sorts to art and design, where you'll find works by the likes of Anish Kapoor and James Terrell. It's part gallery, part museum, all Axel Vervoort. Today, he runs his business with the aid of his sons and their spouses. It's a true family affair. I caught up with Axel from his, well, castle, to discuss his days as the enfant terrible of antiques, how he developed his unique sensibilities, and what kind of music you might hear when popping by for a visit. You know, your your personal story and career is so uh, intertwined with Belgium and the built environment. What do you remember, you know, as a kid uh, in the 50s in Antwerp? What was it like? As a child, you know, I always loved Antwerp. It, it was a period they tear down a lot of the beautiful medieval houses and quarters. There was very long time more socialist uh, burgomeisters, and you know they brought they wanted more so social living, and they didn't want too many old restored houses because old restored houses was not for the people they needed to want to live in the city. So a lot was demolished, and this was very sad. And my mother. But this one, I was like six or seven already. She tried to save beautiful medieval houses. 
and she bought them and then uh, restored them together with artist friends and and uh, and and I love that uh, you know to save things and and saving the old houses and being inspired by the real old houses and and doing it with a limited budget because my father didn't always want to pay enough money to restore it all completely but this made it all more interesting so she gave it to artists who could live in it so we had to contact with the artist and contact with the materials and contact with uh, beautiful potters and sculptures and uh, i have a wonderful memory of that and your mother, was she a designer more, or is she uh, more real estate? No, not at all. No, no, my father was a, a horse uh, dealer. He was a very good horse dealer, very knowledgeable, and he sold almost like sometimes 100 horses a week. So we had wow. imported. Uh, uh, but my mother never worked. But she ah, okay. had, uh, she always made the house look nice. She always put the right flowers. She had received the clients of my father at home. And we always had a very cozy house, a small house, which was built in the, in the, in the garden of my grandparents. Huh? But after the war, my parents wanted to live in a smaller house with no staff and, and something very cozy. And I'm, I'm fascinated by your father's uh, dealing as, as a horse trader. Was they, were they racehorses? Or were no, they no, more, everything uh, was besides racehorses. He would have for jumping, for dressage, also for the port, because in those days they were still selling lots of heavy Brabant horses for to work in the port of Antwerp for the, the boats, and also the breweries had horses, and 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 he had an amazing knowledge of horses. He, he could hear a horse and say, oh, this horse is irregular on the backside left, uh, you know, by hearing it, even not without seeing it. And he was very gifted. It was a time I thought I might have to take over that business, but then I realized I never was as gifted for horses as my, as my father. I, then I was very interested in art, in artists, uh, and I was making things myself as well. And I was still, I was, I was always at Jesuit college from my first year to uh, seven years till 18. Uh, and you know, and then went to university. And, and I heard that you, you, you bought a, a trunk or something as as you were as young as fifteen years old when you started collecting. Yes, 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 yes. What was that trunk like? What did you did you get a good price for it? No, that was because as I was interested in contemporary art, and I lived, I also liked old art. I always liked old art and and the warmth of old art. But I always was looking for old art that almost looked contemporary. And the contemporary art was inspiring me how to look at old art. And I was always liking to find things that are very universal, that in a way were already invented by the old. And we saw, and it was a morning I, I saw an exhibition of, of Tang Yi, you know, the mobile figures. And I loved that. And, and this was in, uh, in the early 60s. Huh? But that was then sixty thousand thousand francs. It cost one thing, and I couldn't afford that because I was so young. And the same day, I discovered this trunk, it completely in iron, was a safe trunk, and one lock uh, moved eight locks, one key, one key. It was like a mobile, and this to me was like the mobile of the seventeenth century, which I could buy then for ten times less for six thousand francs. Ah, okay. What did they keep in a trunk that was so valuable that it had eight locks and one key? I think on ships, gold or or treasures and. Uh, 
money, whatever, silver, yes. So it was a serious trunk. It was not yes, uh, yes. something you would have in a, in a bedroom with uh, some blankets. And no, 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 no. I think it was, it was a ship's mainly used is to move uh, valuable things. I still have the trunk. Huh? Yes. Oh, you do? Yes, okay. sure. Yes. And when you, were, when you were that young and interested in these collecting things like that, like what did your, what did your family think? Did we, I mean, it sounds like your mother was very supportive. My mother loved that, and my father was not so interested. Uh, I thought he were, I was spending more money than I was investing. But he, he only realized I was investing money when I was 20, I think, or, or 21 already, because then I made some money already. Is And, uh, you know, uh, there was a, I think there's a property that at 21, you know, it's like such a young man that you were, you were renovating and it's a, a, a home, I think in, a, in an alley that I think your, your son now lives in or. No, it's not, yeah, it's a bit bigger than that. It's a, you know, uh, I finished my studies at was 18. Then I went to university and studied economics because my father always said, if you want to be a collector, you need to have a good business or a good uh, that you have make enough money to be good, have a good collection. Meantime, I was already buying and selling to the friends of my parents. I had some money already, but then I found this economic study so boring. And I said, I'm going to do like an, a sabbatical year. And we, those days, we still had to go to the army. So I go to the army, but I said to the army, do I really have to come to the army? Because I will never kill anybody, and not even not an enemy. You know? <laughs> so, but I put me in the pharmacy for <laughs> curing the people. But qu very quickly, I turned the pharmacy into a kind of aperitif bar. I had in my pharmacy also gin bottles and martini, and come and I met lots of people. And everybody asked, uh, "There's nothing for sale in your grandfather's uh, attic or your parents?" And I bought amazing things. Uh, even a, a painting of Magritte. I bought a very famous painting of Magritte, La Memoire. I bought fantastic 18th century silver. I bought many things. So I was making already some money. Huh? And but also when I was sixteen, I was I fourteen. I went to first time to England because to buy on buying trips uh, for buying antiques and things, which I changed my room. But then I sold it quickly. All the friends of my parents I wanted, and they were all phoning me, "Can we get more?" And so every school holiday, I went on buying trips. And so and then at the army, I decided after I bought the painting of Magritte. No, I'm going to make a business of it. I stopped my university studies, and I, I want to be a real art dealer. And was fascinated by it. And uh, and then I said to my mother, "But I never would like to have a shop. Uh, I would like to deal from a home." And and then because I only will buy things I love myself, I want to live with them first and then sell them. And then in a way, selling is more sharing with other people. You know, it's because once you have loved something, you have possessed it, it's enough for me. You don't, I don't, don't need to continue to possess it. And then my, my mother was with a bike. She went around the old city, always looking for the old houses. And she said, there's a beautiful medieval street uh, from the 15th, 16th century. Uh, and you might be, and that's for sale. You might buy one or two houses there. And it belonged to two very old ladies. And I went to the ladies and tried to buy it. And then they said, no, we, we sell the old street or nothing. 
But I was only 21 after thinking that I decided to buy the whole street. Wow. Did, what did they think when a 21-year-old man said, I want to buy the whole street? <laughs> I, I think that I looked much older. <laughs> so they didn't even realize I was 21, I think. But uh, uh, it was a very good contact with two, two old ladies. One was 87, the other one 80, uh, 92. They never wanted to go there. They inherited from their parents, and they never went there because there's a bad quarter of Antwerp. It was the center, but uh, it was really a very uh, bad quarters. And, uh, and so then I restored it, and there were still very old people living in it. But I gave all tasks to all the old people. So uh, they all step kept living there till they died, which was very nice. Before you return to Axel, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design, where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designer fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Pierre Lussoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. One of the very helpful features on Lumens.com is the ability to shop by different styles of contemporary designs, from mid-century modern to Scandinavian. So if you're completely awestruck by Axel's muted tones and terracotta fabulousness, perhaps you might want to explore the rustic modern styles on the site. There you'll find pieces from pendants and dining tables to one of my favorites, the Domus Lounge Chair by Artec in the vintage-looking honey-stained option, of course. To get started outfitting your own rustic manse, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. And I'm curious, like when you were, you had your antiques business and you're a, a, a young man and, and you know, the, the antiques business can be kind of tough and very competitive with lots of other dealers. Uh, what was that business like? back then yes the m- most dealers were very classical and i like to mix very useful things things made from farmers extremely simple to mix it with very important uh, renaissance pieces was anyone doing that at the time back then or were you- nobody nobody and i was very criticized by classical colleagues but i continued doing it even at big fairs but i was quite young in my 30s, the youngest artist dealer then, we were invited to the Grand Palais in Paris for the big Biennale. And there I made very important clients. And it was a, a long story. Uh, it was the Diaron who came to my place in Antwerp and he loved everything I did. And he said, you should have a good, a good booth in, in Paris for the Biennale. And then I, I had beautiful things, but already from England, I had great uh, collectors who sold me things, important families. I had fantastic royal silver. But I also always had interested in very meditative art, oriental, Japanese, uh, uh, things that are extremely silent. I always liked the two ways, and I still is living like that as well. I like the very baroque, energy of life 
that I also like, very silent, very serene, and but always warm, never dogmatic. Uh, and these two combinations. And this was then uh, in 82, my first Biennale. I brought all my beautiful things and I, I organized it with a little bit of decoration and I put my Asiatic things apart in my Baroque stand somewhere else, hey, whatever. And then I realized that all the other deals were making amazing decorations and booths and niches and all that. And I was so uh, disappointed. I think my booth going to look terrible. It's going to look from a little boy of, uh, in the country in Belgium. They will hate it in Paris. And I was so disappointed, so depressed. I went outside on the lawn, fell asleep like a clochard, sleeping on the ground for two full hours. And I came back in the Biennale and I saw all these booths from the colleagues. I thought they would become fantastic. I thought they were horrible. They put <laughs> material, uh, wallpaper, uh, over-decorated, and there's no spirit anymore. And in that day, I didn't know what was it, the word loft, but then I took all my decoration away, everything I took. I left a concrete floor. Uh, I, I left no decoration, but beautiful things. Mixed my Asiatic things with the Baroque things, and 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 it, I loved. I think I'm going to do it perhaps once. Nobody might like it, but I'm going to make a booth like an artist would do it. He just mix it, and he wants the energy of everything. And this was a huge success. And I never you sold you, you, uh, you sold well. We sold well, and we met the Nuriev bought uh, all the leather, the cover. I be, he became a client afterwards. Uh, the oh, Valentino okay. bought things. The Getty Museum bought things. The, it was amazing. It was like wow. all the Rothschild family. Uh, it was amazing. The, the important clients I had then at that young age after that fair, which looked like a loft. Wow, amazing! And I'm curious the. You mentioned, you know, art from Asia seems to be so important in your career. But when did that when did that work from Asia first was introduced to you? Was it as you know, was it uh... quite soon? I was attracted, but mainly also through my friend Jeff Ryan, the zero artist who was very befriended with the Dr. Macken. And he was a collector of Asian art, very early Asian art and beautiful early sculpture and screens and calligraphy. And he made me understand what's the difference between Chinese, Korean and, and Japanese. And, and I was very fascinated by that. And that, there's a big love of, of Oriental art. Uh, uh, and I, I did read books about it, about Zen philosophy and all that. Uh, very quickly, I was very attracted by that. Yes. It's always still now. Before we return to Axel, a word from our sponsor, Tafoff. As fans of this podcast will know, Tafoff Maastricht, along with its sister show in New York, are some of the most beautiful and exciting art and collectible design fairs in the world. In fact, our guest today, Axel Vervoort, has a relationship going back decades with Tafoff as an integral part of the illustrious fair's history. And Tafoff Maastricht returns once again this March from the 11th through the 19th, with invitation-only days on March 9th and 10th. The fair brings together 7,000 years of history under one roof, with 268 dealers from dozens of countries, including 13 first-time exhibitors. The fair will also highlight emerging dealers, with 10 participating galleries as part of the TAFOF Showcase Initiative, 
bringing attention to exciting voices in paintings, rare books, 20th century design, and more. And for those that can't visit in person, we'll be there on the show floor for another episode of the Grand Tourist Selects, investigating the major highlights from jewelry and paintings to design and ancient art. And for us New Yorkers, Tefoff will return to the Park Avenue Armory from May 12th through the 16th, with May 11th by invitation only. For more information about Tefoff Maastricht and how to purchase tickets, please visit tefoff.com. That's T-E-F-A-F dot com. In 1984, Axel made a singular purchase that made him a star in the world of arts and antiques. He acquired a massive part of the Hatcher Cargo, a treasure trove of about 25,000 pieces of Ming Dynasty porcelain from a 17th century shipwreck off the coast of what is today Jakarta. He later exhibited the pieces in new and exciting ways, transforming these lost decorative objects into desirable contemporary treasures. I wanted to get the inside story on how and why he decided to take this risk. I was not so interested in blue and white Chinese porcelain. I thought it was even a bit bourgeois, but not so much my taste. But I had a very good American client from Dallas, my big, really important client. This was also early 80s. And Dallas was a huge house, and they bought all the best quality artworks for it. And she saw there was a sale. She came specially over for the sale in Amsterdam for the Hatcher collection. I never heard of it. And I went with her to, to the sale, and I saw this Hatcher collection, and I loved it because it was 300 years under the sea water, so it was less shiny. It was a bit matte. So. And then I saw it was painted like Zen calligraphy, very spontaneous, very quick, without thinking, just like that. Even the back of the place were like Zen painting. And I fell in love with that type of blue and white china what year was the what year was that the the ship sink that the oh the sink sink 1644 ah okay and how many pieces were in that because it looks like there were tiny ones right big pieces little pieces there were about twelve thousand pieces and i bought seven thousand (laughs) six hundred it's huge because you know because i started buying but when everybody, but then I'm, I had two of my assistants, uh, art historians, who went to check all the collection, and instead of having a lot of a hundred pieces, there's eighty good ones and twenty bad ones, and and there's another place, there's eighty bad ones and only twenty uh, ten medium and ten good ones. I tried to buy all the good lots, but everybody knew that I was very well uh, documented and knew what the sale was, so. I put, I tried to buy in the beginning, but I saw everybody was imitating, and I didn't want to see this China all over in all the places. So I wanted to have a little bit of monopoly of it and to to launch it the right way. And then when I when I bought it, the good plots I did buy very discreetly, and that the nobody no saw it. And the bad lots I first put up my hands very high, and so everybody thought he would love that. Then they all bought that. <laughs> so it was a big game. We laughed very much. And then I, my my American client said, "You buy the pair numbers. I buy the unpair. But if she doesn't want the pair one, I bought it as well." So <laughs> we made a lot of fun. 
it. And tell me about the the castle and and or do you, you that you still you still have? I'm sure. And yeah, yeah, you still live there. We still live there. I'm I'm there now. Yes. And and uh, it, it was a, a, a castle that I think was in pride, you know, not sold for a very very long time. It never changed hands. Can you tell tell me about it? When we bought it in 1984, it was the other time it was sold was 1729. It's always been in one family, in one hand. But at the end, there were 42 inheritance, and not one person could buy it all. But what's so beautiful, we have beautiful park around, the grounds around. It's still quite big and close to the city, which makes it unique. And it did already exist in 1108, uh, and it's been transformed. Who, who built it originally? That we don't even know. It's It was already existing in 1108. Well, there's an oldest time it's been mentioned. And we know till 1360 who lived here. So uh, every time, yes. So, uh, and was it in good, what was the condition like when you purchased it? When I bought Little Street, it was like a ruin. And I made of a ruin something beautiful. And this was very exciting. The castle was in good condition, but bad taste. How so? I don't like the tassel at, at all inside. I love the property, love the gardens, the trees, and that was unique. But it had been changed a lot in the in the sixties with cheap material, formica and and plastic and oh, and, and oh, wow. really ugly. But and I came with a good friend who knows, who knows a property dealer to see what he thinks of the value. He said it's good, but what can you do with that castle? <laughs> he, he didn't like the castle at all. I didn't like. I say I don't like the castle either, but I'll make something nice of it. Yeah, and it really became great home. But it's a lot of work. And but we have to. There was it was still maintained, but we had to change a lot. Yeah. And what? Why did you decide to? you know, not pursue interiors and things like that full-time and kind of keep this nice mix. I'm so interested and excited by art and artists. I think that's my leading point because I don't like the word decoration. I don't like, it's for me too superficial. I want to, it's a search for harmony. And uh, and I, I love architecture, and all my life I studied also secret geometry and uh, the the proportions, huh? and uh, and I find it that what that thing something you feel you don't even see but you feel it. It's a lot about that. It's not a vision of a decorator who wants to make it please nice and with the curtains. I love the curtains to be very. Like almost you don't see them, you know they belong to everything, and it's the more the attention is more the art and the people. It's a different vision, and and that's what now I think more and more people like, and we have a lot of work, and and I still work very hard, and I love to work hard, and I prefer that on holidays, so I don't mind. Yes. Before you return to Axel, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. With a catalog of over 150 original designs, the brand offers a broad range of options for interior designers to fit any project's needs. Each carpet is customizable in size, shape, and color, as large as 27 feet wide or over 40 feet long for both area rug applications or wall-to-wall. And the company's in-house art studio can scale motifs and repeats 
to maintain the spirit of each design to adapt to any furniture plan. To create your own bespoke masterpiece carpet, visit BoardStreetStudio.com. We touched upon this already, but there seems to be a shift in aesthetic over the years towards, I guess, what we could call, you know, a, a more of a Zen look. Is that is that right? For me, there's not a change, but I think the more Zen pieces are more published. But if you come and see our home, like now, I'm sitting in my office. It's very classical with a lot of family souvenirs, and and I love this atmosphere for working. Like the Zen atmosphere, I like to do nothing or or read an interesting book or uh, some meditative music. It's a different, but I like these two lives together. And uh, and I realize that now more and more of my younger clients, they want back this warmth. They don't want a very minimal cold in tears anymore. But I pers- I always like both. I, like in a house, I would make the most beautiful room, I would make very zen. Because architecture is so beautiful that you don't have to add too much. Just a few works of art. and I deserve- But then I love a full library with your books, with lots of objects, with beautiful things, but also with ugly things to receive from nice people. You want to have to give them a place, <laughs> you know. And that's it's. And and then I always love a very welcoming kitchen. When your kids come home, they can open a fridge, they can have a drink, and everybody's welcome. And uh, that's so. I I like a house with different depends your mood, different atmospheres in one house. Those are my favorite houses. And, and when it comes to Canal, uh, this massive project that took. Uh, I think over ten years to to kind of uh, you know to com- really complete. It's never complete. Things are never completed. It's never. <laughs> that's true. Um, how did you know it began with a factory? If I if I'm correct, right? That was the first piece of uh, property that you purchased there, or no? It was an old factory that stopped. It was a brewery that made the malt for all the beer of Heineken beer. So it was a, a big yes, and it's uh, the, it was a whole complex, a whole street that started in 1830, and still till 1960 they built big silos in it. But uh, our our warehouse became too small, our our workshops became too small, so we needed more space. Even after the castle, because we moved from the city to the castle, it was become too small again. And we had to go to Industrial Park to, we decided we're going to buy their land and build kind of a factory. But every time I went, I hated it. I said, I never want to come here. I don't feel at home. And at once, one of these big industrial build, old buildings of 1830 was put for sale on, and I went to buy it immediately. And then uh, even my sons uh, were not so happy in the beginning. We said there might be building permissions and all big problems. I said, it doesn't matter. We're going to make something beautiful and they will never destroy it. And then it took us 10 years to buy the old street. And then my second son is in real estate. He transformed it and we have a hundred apartments and museums and things like that. I mean, did you, when you, when you first, you know, purchased that, those buildings, did you think of it as like a, you know, a destination or now, now it's almost like if you go, if you read any design guide or any tourism guide to, 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 to the city, you will, it is mentioned all, you know, it is, it is now a destination. Did you think about it as a destination? 
in that mm, way. I never. Th- I always do my best in everything I do. I always want to make the best of it, but I n- don't never think that long. You know, I know that the long vision will come anyway. But you have to live now, I think, and make of now the best all the time, and be and listen a lot to your intuition. That's for me very important. My intuition will say this is a good source. I want to work for it. I want to work further on it. Yes. And there's such a strong sense of programming and 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 planning, and with the museum and everything like that. Um, if you were to say when someone comes to visit this space you know what do you want people to feel when they are in that space what 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 is your goal um because there is you spoke about sacred geometries and things like that i I think they feel it the sacred geometry which is very present there and also the presence of natural materials a lot of walls are made by hemp and and with a real lime plaster and something you don't see but you feel and and all the art is very peaceful Contemporary art or old art. I never have things out of destruction and war. It's all very peaceful. And that's also, uh, I think, works on, on the mood of the people. And uh, there's a, a huge, one of the, the first big pieces Anish Kapoor made. It's a special house for it. And then Terrell made the chapel. It's all about universal art and and things that are more that you feel that okay, you can see and always very peaceful. It's never war, never concentration, never political, uh, never what to be better than the others. It is just what it is. And, and today, you know, the, the, the business is quite big and has lots of different uh, arms. And, and how, can, you tell, can you tell the listeners, you know, how your business is set up today and how because your family is involved and your son Boris is involved. Yes, it's a, the, we have several, it's a holding of several businesses. And uh, uh, I'm extremely lucky to have two very gifted sons. Huh? And there's many things they know a lot better than I can. Huh? I do my best on my way. And, and Boris is very good in organizing all business. I don't already for many years. I deal with I don't deal with organization with new staff with financial he does that and my second son he runs the real estate and I thought always thought he would do something else but he runs that and he did real estate management and his wife is also architect and also a real estate financial specialist so and they they developed this fantastically so the and it's still one family business and I think everybody is very good together and and uh, everybody's respect for each other's differences because we're all different different moods different uh you know different loves but at the end is the same strength you know there's something very common but there's a lot of respect for each other's freedom hmm? that binds Did us together Huh? Did your kids always want to be a part of the business? Your, did your son? No, Boris. Well, Boris, when he was seven already, he followed and he did, wanted to do everything I did. My second son, he hated everything I did, so he wanted to go and study in Canada because he loved ice hockey, and he wanted to go and live in a, in a uh, country where there's lots of ice, and he was very good in ice hockey. And then one day he came back. I thought he would be lost for all. He would marry somebody there. 
And one day he came back and I said, Daddy, if you want to, I want to build the family business, and I, I was so happy. And I said, but then if you don't, I will do the real estate because I can see you have no time for it anymore. And this is how it started. And then he went in evening course, went to study real estate management. He very quickly became president of it. And, and he, he, he started working as a help mason to new all the mentality of all the masons and all that. That's great. Um, and I heard that your, your son Boris presented to you, you told a story once that when he was seven years old that he put on a little fair. Yeah, it's true. Yes. What did he sell and did you get a good price? No, the thing is, as I was the first in the beginning with my wife, we were the first in importing contemporary Italian furniture to mix with our antiques which we did in the 60s. Huh? Huh? Uh, so it was quite new. But the problem like Willy Rizzo, there were several pieces I liked a lot, but there were also things I really didn't like, gilded and metal and too decorative. And we couldn't, and I couldn't sell anything I, I didn't like myself. So we, we ended up with a big stock of contemporary furniture that cost a lot. And one evening I was telling to my wife and my son of seven years was listening. And I said, it's such a shame. We have for two million contemporary furniture here. If I would have bought antiques instead, it would be worth so much more today. It's so stupid. What can we do it? We can't do it with. And he's, he heard on the radio that you could make, a, there was a fair and you could bring anything you wanted. And with his first class writing, he, he did, uh, invite our friends and family for his fair. And he wanted to give this as a surprise. We didn't know that. And that's it was called Romoland, the junk lands. And I was building up our business. I said, how can I, how can we go on a junk land exhibition? That's impossible. He called. And then my mother, she came and said, well, your, your son is genius. You, you should do it. And I, I will, I will hire a little camionette, a little van. I will help him. So my mother helped him. And, it, and so, and he sold a lot. It was amazing. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> what did he what did a seven year old do with the money? That's what I want. No, the thing is I I said you can get ten percent uh of everything you sell. Eh? And then when he sold it, I remember he sold for sixty eight thousand bucks of francs. Those days was more more than today. And uh and I gave him six thousand eight hundred and he starts crying. Because I thought I didn't get the six thousand eight hundred and he the rest <laughs> <laughs> and then my mother said, you're leaving me this thought. He's so nice. No, no, he has to learn it in the way he should do. <laughs> and uh, you gave an interview once where you said that if you were stopped at, at, you know, at the airport at customs and they said what your what your profession is, you wouldn't exactly know. I how never, I still don't know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't know. I say art dealer now, but it's different than most art dealers. So uh, I do a lot of architecture now as well because I'm so busy with sacred architecture and uh, and uh, and the art of proportions and all that. So we we have a lot of beautiful architectural projects as well, which I do together with other architects. Uh, uh, so it's a lot of things and a lot of music as well. I've, what do you listen to? What does Axel Vervoort listen to on a more classical music? Yes. Yeah, like yeah. who? What kind of what kind uh, of depends, uh, but uh, 
I, again, there I, I, I like Bach and, and Beethoven and Mozart. I love very much, but also like opera. And I just listened to Rosenkavalier of Strauss, uh, you know, uh, and I was really thrilled by it. And I also like contemporary music. I like jazz, but I don't know jazz so well. I love it when I hear it, but I will never put it for myself. Uh, and uh, I, I think I understand what you mean. Yes, it's but, a whole uh, world unto itself. Yeah, but once when, when I don't know about, about classical music, I know immediately who is the composer. I even hear who's singing it or or playing it very often. You know, I have this. I have a great feeling for it. But for jazz, I like it, but without knowing. And it, it, if someone came to you and said, "I'm about to curate my first show," right? My I have a new business, and I'm about to curate my first show. Uh, what would you? What piece of advice would you give them? Be as genuine as possible. Believe extreme what you do. Don't copy anything else, but uh, show something that you believe in very strongly, and that's perhaps not known enough. So make them discover something that you discovered, and make this uh, share it. Yeah. And is there any uh, as the business expands, and you speak to your your sons? I'm sure about where things should go where do you think your your family business should go in the next decade let's say i don't know they should be free as well they they will create it themselves uh so we create a foundation for the art collection and they can still see what they can do with it and the rest uh, they can we i'll see the third generation the the grandchildren i don't know if they will be that passionate i'm extremely passionate of everything i do uh, like my father was with his horses. That's why I didn't take over his horse business. He was much more passionate with horses than I was. I was more passionate in art. It's possible they do something else. Huh? My Like my second son is much more interested in real estate, but he doesn't do the real estate I like. He do big projects and he's very budget-minded. And I can't even look at it because my taste looks looks poor and it's very expensive. <laughs> There's the opposite that the, re the real estate people want. It should not cost much, it should look expensive. Uh, I guess my last question, uh, if I asked um, Axel Vervoort, what is beauty? If it means harmony, is uh, the most important, I think, is, is harmony. Uh, there's a oneness feeling with everything, and it's very peaceful, and it's very inspiring, and it's very human, and it, it expresses a very positive energy. A special thanks to Axel Verbort and Sophie Ducellier and Magda Gregorian for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more and sign up with their email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>